Nerdette is supported by the Sympathizer podcast from HBO. Join host Philip Nguyen in conversation with the cast, crew, and author Viet Thanh Nguyen as they discuss the making of this historic HBO original limited series. Stream new episodes of HBO's The Sympathizer Sundays exclusively on Max, and listen to The Sympathizer podcast wherever you listen to podcasts. Think on your feet for our Fast and Curious 5K, a one-of-a-kind race hosted by WBEZ and the Chicago Sun-Times on Saturday, July 27th at Humboldt Park. More info and early bird registration at wbez.org slash events. I'm Greta Johnson. I'm Trisha Bobita. And from WBEZ in Chicago, this is Nerdette. Coming up, Melody Kramer tells us about open data, open spaces, and the future of public media. I think for a lot of people who code, they're not necessarily thinking, oh, I want to work in audio, or oh, I want to work for cities, or oh, I want to work in education. They're thinking, I want to solve really complex problems in interesting ways. Then we get to know some women who sang their civil rights. That and your nerd confessions on Nerdette. Because everybody's a little nerdy about something. Make it snappy, nerd! Nerds! Nerd! I'm Greta Johnson. I'm Trisha Bobita. And you're listening to Nerdette. Melody Kramer is a legit, maybe the most legit, public radio nerd. Right? She's worked for Wait, Wait, Don't Tell Me, Fresh Air, and NPR. Most of her work has revolved around how to make public radio relevant in a changing media landscape, and to make the things that public media does more public. She spent the last couple of years working at NPR in what's called the social sandbox. So everything that NPR was trying to do to make their content more relevant in a digital space so that they could get more from the audience and give more to the audience. She's also thought a lot about the public radio membership model and how a membership can do more for the community than just giving money during pledge drives. She's kind of like the Tiresias of public media. <laughs> a little bit, yeah. And she's taking everything she's learned working in public media for the last couple of years to an exciting new venture. She's going to be working at 18F that's like a startup within the federal government. They parachute in. They try to make everything better, more efficient, faster, stronger, more interwebs friendly. We're excited that she's doing this and wanted to talk to her about the things she's learned in trying to make public media and the federal government better at the digital world. I met my partner on OkCupid. And when I was on OkCupid, I was looking at online dating profiles and everyone lists Terry Gross in their OkCupid profile. And (laughs) I was thinking to myself, this is really weird. Like, what is it about Terry Gross where you'd want to put her in your online dating profile where you wouldn't necessarily put, like, other media that you're consuming? Like, I don't know how many people put the Wall Street Journal, like, in a dating profile. But people (laughs) who listen to and enjoy public radio, I think, have an affiliation with public radio that they see it as an extension of themselves. So they see public radio as a part of themselves. They are part of a larger public radio community. And I keep thinking about how public radio talks to the people in that community. Um, We obviously broadcast a lot of things, which is a very one-way street. You put something out on the radio and people listen to it, and they're not necessarily interacting with it. And we constantly ask people to pledge money or donate during pledge drives, which is one way to ask people to become involved in the community. But I keep thinking that there are more inclusive ways of inviting participation and having people who value public radio contribute in a meaningful way. And one way that people can do that is through donating their time or a skill or some kind of code that they have learned. And if you consider donations of time or skill or 
tagging an archive or donating code, a lot of those things have to be done in person, which means if people were doing them, they're meeting other people like themselves. So I think there's a way to say we have all of these physical spaces across the United States. I think there's 835 public radio station facilities across the United States. And could we think of them as more of community centers where people could come together, like-minded people, work on projects together, and potentially help both their public radio station and meet other people like them? And could we consider that a donation of some sort and potentially make them members? So that's kind of the idea that I've been kicking around. I love it so much because even the smallest of the stations in the public radio system have some sort of conference room, some space, or maybe they already have a partnership to do events with another physical space in their community if they don't have enough room for the kind of hackathon or just meetup that you're talking about. What did you learn about this from Code for America? Where does that play into this idea? Code for America is a nonprofit organization that has fellowship brigades across the United States, and they're in lots of cities, both big and small. And basically, people come together once a week at some place in the city, and nonprofits come and say, we'd really, really like to have this as a website, or we'd like to have this feature as an app, but we don't have the capacity to build it. And people who are part of the Code for America brigades work together to build those things for nonprofits within cities. And what I like about that is that the people who are working on those projects for the nonprofits meet other people who are coding. They become more involved in their city, and they are able to add different languages and skill sets to their resume or portfolio. And in turn, the nonprofits get to work with these really smart, creative people in a way that they might not have the capacity for. And I keep thinking, okay, well, Code for America is in all of these places. And a lot of times they're meeting at random office buildings around town. But it's also public radio stations in every town and community. And a lot of space concerns, I think, could be alleviated if public radio became more involved in those kinds of communities. And also said, these are the pain points that we have. Would you be interested in working on those things? And I think for a lot of people who code, they're not necessarily thinking, oh, I want to work in audio or, oh, I want to work for cities or, oh, I want to work in education. They're thinking, I want to solve really complex problems in interesting ways. And they're looking for problems to solve. And in public radio, we have a lot of problems that can be solved. Um, <laughs> If only we asked for it. And in turn, these people get things, I think, for their resume or for their portfolio and also can say, OK, we helped a nonprofit in this way. Could we potentially pivot and make this a for-profit solution for other companies or businesses because we know that this is a problem? When it comes to journalism and reporting and public media especially, it's really easy to end up in this little bubble where the only mm-hmm. people we're really talking to in terms of strategizing about the future of public media is other people who have maybe never worked in anything other than public media, let alone yeah. actually the consumers of media. And I feel like you've done a really good job of kind of branching out beyond that bubble. What has that been yeah. like for you? And why have you been so intentional about doing that? Well, for the past year and a half, I've run something called The Social Sandbox, which is a blog on Tumblr where people from NPR revealed their entire reporting process as they were reporting on stories or talked about different tips or tricks that they've learned or just talked about things that they've tried in the social and digital space that have worked or not worked. And we've been very intentional about sharing every part of that process. And in part, we've done that because we're public media and we believe in sharing things with the public. But in part, it's because I've been watching other news organizations move much more quickly in the digital space or 
try out new things or they just have a capacity that people in public radio don't. You're also blogging about people you meet who aren't in the news business and just what news means to them, how they interact with different news platforms and brands. What have been some of your favorite kernels of those interactions that were things you didn't expect or really think may be indicative of something that people inside media are missing about the way people want to consume news? Well, I think people in media consume news very differently than people outside (laughs) of news. And I think we consume a lot more of it. I think that we think that everyone consumes news the way that we do. You mean most people don't listen to Morning Edition for four hours every day? (laughs) That's not a normal consumption pattern? Every single story and every single story in the same order. (laughs) Twice? Twice? (laughs) Yeah, and most people do not look at Twitter all day long. And a lot of people are watching TV news. I mean, I don't watch an evening news program, but a lot of people across the country still do. A lot of people, they're shift workers. They're not consuming news at 5 o'clock and 8 o'clock in the morning. They're consuming news when they get home or they're consuming news through push notifications. And I think if our goal is to better connect with our audience and provide them information that they can use, we have to think, like, how are they consuming this and what do they actually want? Are we building products or solutions that actually make sense or are we building things for ourselves? And if we're only talking to each other, I know that a lot of people on Twitter who are journalists typically only interact with other journalists follow a lot of other journalists. And that's not really indicative of how the country or even the world consumes news. They're not reading it or thinking about it in the same way. I mean, I have two younger brothers. One of them's in med school, one of them's a resident, and both of them get their news on Snapchat and through something called Twitch, which follows video game players around. They're not reading the New York Times on a daily basis, and yet they still get the news. Snapchat's not my jam. I could spend all day long in Tumblr, but I think it's interesting that even within the social media space, if you assume that someone is consuming news there, it's such a different way to interact on Tumblr versus Facebook versus Twitter. And Social Sandbox did a good job, I think, of explaining that to journalists that just because we have more channels doesn't mean we use the same megaphone we got used to using in broadcast or print media. You can't do that. It doesn't work in those other spaces. Yeah. And like what I used to tell my coworkers is that I don't want you everywhere. I would like you somewhere and I would like you to figure out what spot works the best for your beat or who your audience is or who you plan to connect with. There's no point in being on like 14 different social media networks. That would mean you're never actually doing your work. Um, (laughs) I find Twitter most useful for myself and the kind of work that I do. I have colleagues who are on Tumblr or Facebook or Snapchat or WeChat or WhatsApp. You shouldn't just be on Twitter because everybody's on Twitter. That might not be the right place for you. I think it's really easy for us to forget that the reason we're actually doing all this stuff is for the audience. And so to really think about how is this the best consumer experience I talk to people all day long. I ask for advice a lot on Twitter. I take advice from people. I've changed entire projects based on things people have suggested. And I think by making yourself completely open and transparent, you're just opening yourself up to finding out more information or finding better information. We've been talking about what you've been spending the last couple of years doing, this work at NPR when it comes to digital and social media. But you just left that gig for a very exciting sounding new gig. And I know there may be government secrets involved, so you can't tell us everything. But what can you tell us about your next adventure? Sure. I left NPR and I'm starting a new job with a digital agency within the federal government called 18F. And it's called that because that's the location where it is in D.C. It's at 18th and F. The rest of the federal government 
are their clients, and they work on very quick, iterative projects for different federal agencies, and they come in, they build something, or they help fix something, and then they go out. And what appealed to me about that was it's a two-year gig. It's a time-limited position. I really just wanted to bounce off of other people and learn new ideas. And I really, really liked the idea of going to a place where it's project-based and you go and you do something and then you leave. You'll be able to measure your own success in a really interesting way that way, too, I think. Yeah. And the particular unit that I'm going to makes everything that they do public. They publish all of their code. They have a Tumblr where they talk about their process. And I plan to continue making all of my work public and bouncing off people. And I think that's particularly important when you're trying to do things that make government services easier to access for uh, people at home. There was a study out just last week that talked to managers across federal agencies about the use of technology in the workplace. And I think it was something like less than 20 percent, about 15 percent, say that they feel that the government can keep pace with the private sector when it comes to adopting technology in the workplace. And Hmm. we had a conversation around the office about it because my question is really, can they ever? Can they ever keep up? I mean, there's room to grow between those 15 percent thinking that they can keep up and maybe there's a lot of smaller projects that can snowball into bigger changes across the federal government for employees. But does the government suffer from the same thing that we talked about public media suffering from, which is just it's not as nimble as the startup culture or the for-profit media culture when it comes to integrating technology? Well, I think that a lot of the new for-profit media startups that have been created have been started by people who left larger, less flexible organizations and they're focusing on one specific thing and they're really small right now and they're able to be agile because they're really small. Hmm. But I think it will be interesting when they scale and as they grow older because then you have to kind of put processes in place to say when this person leaves, we're still able to do this or as this grows, we're still able to do this. And I think that's when difficulties arise in whatever organization you're working at just because it's so much larger and you, you can't control everything. I used to work at Fresh Air with Terry Gross, and it was a staff of 12. And in order to get something done, I asked Terry, bam, it could be done. It was right. like very easy. I would just walk to her office and ask her if I could do something, and then I could do it. Yeah. Um, and when you work at a larger organization, there are lots of layers. And I'm not sure the federal government is different than public media or any large organization. If something works, how do you let all of your coworkers know that information? How do you very quickly put that in place? And I think that's something that every large organization has to deal with. People are still catching on to the idea that it's okay for things not to work also. I'm a really big fan of failing publicly. I've failed (laughs) publicly more than once, and I've tried things out personally that didn't work out for me. I, I went to medical school a few years ago and dropped out. And every part of that I made public, and I just left my job and I made that public. And a lot of projects that I tried to do at work either didn't get up off the ground because I didn't have buy-in or I couldn't get the right resources Or, you know, we tried it and it didn't work out the way that we wanted it to. But I always tried to make that public because I wanted people to know what we learned from failing. And I didn't really look at it as failing. I just looked at it as trying something. Okay, it's kind of like when you do a science experiment, you have a hypothesis, you try something, you see what happens, and then you change your hypothesis or you iterate based on that. You know, when you say the federal government, there are parts of the federal government with five people in it and there are parts with thousands. And I'm not sure the same solution is right for both groups. I'm glad that there's this unit. I think you guys should have cool uniforms. You could be inspired by the X-Men or some other group. But I think 18F (laughs) needs some superhero type uniforms and that you guys should go forth and conquer. Absolutely. Yeah, I'm excited to see what you come up with.
We know you have the solution somewhere in We're there. We're paying close attention. So thank you for being so public thank about all I'm, of it. I'm hoping to eventually come back to public media. So I'm looking at this as a two-year fellowship to learn everything I possibly can and bounce off of new people. And I'm open to new directions, but I suspect that eventually I will return because I just love public media a lot. You'll be back. You'll be back. Yeah. <laughs> Melody Kramer, thank you so much for joining us on Nerdette. Thank you very much. She's at M. Kramer on Twitter. Still to come, we get some advice for geeks by geeks about dating, celebrate great lady nerds of history who sang their civil rights, and hear your nerd confessions. This is Nerdette. Nerdette is supported by the Sympathizer podcast from HBO. Join host Philip Nguyen in conversation with the cast, crew, and author Viet Thanh Nguyen as they discuss the making of this historic HBO original limited series. Stream new episodes of HBO's The Sympathizer Sundays exclusively on Max, and listen to The Sympathizer podcast wherever you listen to podcasts. You're listening to Nerdette. I'm Trisha Bobita. And I'm Greta Johnson. This week's Great Lady Nerd of History is actually several Great Lady Nerds of History. I didn't watch the Grammys live this weekend, but I went immediately to Tumblr, which is where I find the filtered version of award shows to see what the narrative is that's come out of them. And on Tumblr, the Grammys became all about the artists who sang their civil rights. So that meant that Pharrell's version of Happy that included the hands up, don't shoot, and folks behind him choreographed wearing hoodies. It was Beyonce singing Precious Lord, Take My Hand as a lead in to the song from Selma, Glory, performed by Common and John Legend. The things that we've all been watching play out in the news in Ferguson and in New York City over the last few months, this hands up, don't shoot, Black Lives Matter movement really came to the forefront during the Grammys. And it got us thinking about the ways that music and performers interacted with the civil rights movement of the 1950s and 60s. I think it's really impressive that it's happening this way, and I love that, but it also kind of breaks my heart that we still have to have this conversation. Absolutely. But I think that the artists of today can learn a lot from the work that was done by folks like Lena Horne and Nina Simone, and there's no one who knows them better than Ruth Feldstein. She's an associate professor of history at Rutgers and the author of a book called How It Feels to be Free, Black Women Entertainers and the Civil Rights Movement. She tells us that for many Black female performers, music and politics were two sides of the same coin. In my book, I look at women entertainers who were involved in different ways in the civil rights movement, starting with Lena Horne and then moving on to singers Nina Simone, Abby Lincoln, who was a jazz singer and also appeared in several films. Elegant Bobby. Dancing for joy, delicate world, shades of delight, cocoa hue, rich as the night, Afro blue. Mary McCabe, who's a South African singer who was in the United States for 10 years, from the late 50s into the late 60s. Actresses, Cecily Tyson and Diane Carroll. Be here at nine and... Make yourself as handsome as you can manage. I'm tired of looking at ugly nurses. I married one. I'll do my best, sir. But has Mr. Colton told you? Tell me what? I'm colored. What color are you? I'm a Negro. You always been a Negro? You're just trying to be fashionable. Nine o'clock. Try and be pretty. Part of why I think it's important to look at women entertainers 
is because a lot of Americans engage with the civil rights movement, not just through traditional politics or what I call politics with a capital P. They didn't go to boycotts. They didn't go to marches. They weren't involved in agitating for any kind of specific legislation. But they did listen to certain music or go to certain movies or watch certain television shows. And that was the way that they made sense of the civil rights movement. So these women, I argue, are performing civil rights through their cultural work, and we need to think about them as being activist entertainers. Nina Simone, for example, was an amazingly mesmerizing performer who is really known to connect with her audiences. And she performed at small clubs as well as at Carnegie Hall in the United States, beyond the United States, different kinds of festivals. But she didn't do a lot of television work. I think she was seen as a little bit too provocative, a little too unconventional, a little too radical in her politics. Nina Simone wrote one of her most famous songs a month after the March on Washington, and that's Mississippi Goddamn. Alabama's got me so upset. Tennessee made me lose my rest. Everybody knows about Mississippi Goddamn. And she suggests a very different kind of politics in terms of the kind of racial activism she's talking about and a very different kind of gender politics in the ways that she performs as a black woman. She wrote it in September of 1963. She had just heard about that terrible church bombing in Birmingham, Alabama. The Ku Klux Klan planted a bomb and four young girls were killed. Can't you see it? I know you can feel it. It's all in the air. I can't stand this pressure much longer. Somebody say a prayer. And Nina Simone says that she heard about that bombing and she immediately went out and wrote this song. She said it came to her, there's a quote from her, a rush of fury, hatred, and determination. And in the song Mississippi Goddamn, she really rejects the ethos of going slow. Picket line, schoolboy cops. They try to say it's a communist plot, but all I want is equality for my sister, my brother, my people, and me. And remember, the title of the song is Mississippi Goddamn. She puts that damn right in the title. She's saying, I don't have to behave like a lady to get my rights. I can be angry. So she's really taking this moment, this March on Washington moment, and turning it on its head and really challenging the conventional wisdom about interracial activism in that moment. lots of different venues and different kinds of genres to build their careers. In the period where their careers were really taking off in the late 50s, there was this booming post-war culture industry alongside a really vital political subcultures, too. 
Nina Simone really said it best. She's describing the village gate in that period, which is a jazz club, she said, where, and I'm quoting her, politics was mixed in with so much of what went on that I remember it now as two sides of the same coin, politics and jazz. Wish I knew how it would feel to be free. I wish I could break all chains still binding me. Wish I could say all the things that I can say when I'm relaxed. Ruth Feldstein is associate professor of history at Rutgers and the author of the book How It Feels to Be Free, Black Women Entertainers and the Civil Rights Movement. We'll have links to a Spotify playlist of songs that were mentioned in that book on nerdatpodcast.com. And we'll make sure that if you haven't seen it yet because you live under a rock that you see Beyonce's performance from the Grammys. How sweet it would be to find that I could fly. It's almost Valentine's Day. And I typically find things that are a geek's guide to dating, whether it's an article or a book, a little pandery, not so helpful. But there's one huge exception to that, and that's the book by Eric Smith that's called The Geek's Guide to Dating, which we both found delightful. Yes, the book was inspired by his budding relationship. There was lots of silly stuff like me trying to figure out what sort of video game themed t-shirts would be okay to wear on dates and whether or not I should hide the Nerf gun rack in my living room. A lot of this book is about if you're a geek or a nerd and these things are important in your life, how do you make sure that you're putting yourself out there in the best way possible so that you don't turn someone off by seeming narrow-minded, but that you're also not hiding the fact that you're an enthusiastic person? Eric started with his own experiences, but relied on a lot of friends to gather advice for how to handle being a geek in a relationship, and ended up having to try to live by the advice of his own book. I asked if he has any evidence that his book actually works. Yeah, I hope so. (laughs) I like to think that while I was writing it, it helped make me a better boyfriend. I love the idea that she could just sort of be like, hmm, chapter seven. (laughs) Yeah. My OkCupid profile had all this stuff in it about how I walk around Philadelphia, and I frequently look at buildings to, you know, figure out what would be the best to hold up when the zombie apocalypse comes. <laughs> and my friends would be like, Eric, why do you have that in there? You're going to scare some girl away. They're going to see that and think, oh, this guy is a nerd. I don't want to talk to him. But if a girl didn't want to talk to me because of something like that in there, I probably didn't want to be with them in the first place. You know, I want to be with someone who's going to daydream with me about, <laughs> about the zombie uprising, what we're going to do. I think that's sage advice from Eric Smith, the author of The Geek's Guide to Dating, we asked him to give you a little homework as well. Look for Steve Brenizoff's new book. Uh, it's called Guy in Real Life. It's basically the perfect book for geek guys and geek girls. This D&D loving girl falls in love with like a heavy metal guy. And it's just full of like all those geek pop culture references we all know and love so very, very much. Sounds beautiful. We also have homework from Melody Kramer. I went to the New York Public Library two days ago. I was in New York on a vacation and I looked at their Instagram feed. And I think the New York Public Library is doing an amazing job on Instagram. And the reason is because they're having a conversation with people who might only encounter their public library on Instagram. And they're doing it in a way that's organic and community building. 
So I would say follow the New York Public Library on Instagram and then follow a different library or museum somewhere on social media. Because I think that libraries really get it. They have to morph into more of a community space, and they've done a very good job of that. We'll have a link to all your homework at nerdatpodcast.com. Now it's time to hear from you. Time for Nerd Confessions! Nerd Confessions! This is another extra special librarian nerd confession collected at the American Library Association's Midwest Conference. I normally wear my nerdy heart on my sleeve, but there is one secret that I hide. And I don't even know why, but I'm embarrassed that, uh, you know how people have one of those like college sweatshirts that say Harvard or Yale? So I never outgrew my very first love of my life, LeVar Burton as Jordi LaForge, and my sweatshirt that I put on when I go home at night and never, ever leave the house in says Starfleet Academy. I was kind of hoping it was going to say Hogwarts, but Starfleet <laughs> Academy is pretty good, too. Call 312-600-5638 to tell us about when you were at your nerdiest. Everything from epic fails to humble brags, welcome. Call us and leave your nerd confession, 312-600-5638. Thanks to Melody Kramer, Ruth Feldstein, and Eric Smith for joining us this week. You can find us at nerdatpodcast.com. That's where you can sign up for our email newsletter. Talk with us on Twitter at nerdatpodcast. Like us on Facebook. The show is produced by us, Trisha Bobita and Greta Johnson. With help from Joe Dassault, Iris Lynn, and Colleen Pellisier. Chicago Public Media creates award-winning content about the issues that affect nerds like you. More information is available at chicagopublicmedia.org. Thank you for listening on iTunes, Stitcher, SoundCloud, wherever you're listening. Throw us some stars and write a review if you're feeling generous. Like the excellent 918 did on iTunes. 918? 918 what, Greta? I like to think that it's 9 minus 1 is 8. Oh, you're making it a math problem. I was hoping it was 918 corgis or raspberries or something fabulous. Oh my god, 918 corgis! <laughs> All the corgis! In any case, we appreciate the stars, the retweets, and the shares. There's one other way you can help Nerdette. If you're a nerd with a business or who works for one that wants to get your message heard by Nerdette listeners, you can underwrite the show. Email nerdatpodcast at gmail.com to learn more about sponsorship opportunities. Our theme music is New Old Toys by Poddington Bear. Do your homework. Do your homework. Nerdette is supported by the Sympathizer podcast from HBO. Join host Philip Nguyen in conversation with the cast, crew, and author Viet Thanh Nguyen as they discuss the making of this historic HBO original limited series. Stream new episodes of HBO's The Sympathizer Sundays exclusively on Max, and listen to The Sympathizer podcast wherever you listen to podcasts.